Well, today we have a guest speaker for the next few weeks. We're going to be having some guest speakers come next week. We're having Derwin Dawkin, who was a pastor here, I won't say how many years ago, but a few years ago. And he's going to be coming and sharing with us the following week. Ken Craig is going to be coming. Ken is the pastor at Concordant Baptist Church. And he grew up at Chalmers and found Jesus here and found his call to ministry here. And so lots of exciting things happening today. We have David Schrader, who's our national pastor of our denomination. And so, David, thank you so much for coming and being willing to share with us. And uh, let me just pray for you as you come to speak. And so, Father, we thank you. For David, we thank you for the four C's. And we ask that you would bless us through your word spoken through David, that you would also be with those in our fellowship and association in other places in Canada as they worship today as well. And we just give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Chalmers Community Church. Well, I missed yesterday, and I heard it was wonderful. I would have been probably in there with the kids. How about some of you? Were you in with there with the kids? Come on, put your hand up. Were you, were you in those bouncy castles? Some of you, older adults? If you weren't, shame on you, unless you have a real bad back or, you know. Where do you think Jesus might have been yesterday? Right there, I think right in the midst of all those kids. I do. I think he would have been there. If you, if you recall, Jesus on numerous occasions, didn't he? He had to kind of tell the disciples off in a nice way. And he said, as such, these are the little ones. And this is like the kingdom, these little ones. And don't forbid them, he said. But, but get right in the midst of them because you've got to become like one of them in order to enter into the kingdom. So I just think he would have been there having a great time. And by the way, I don't know that you need to be reminded of this, but uh, just let me say this anyway. I think it's exciting to see all the kids that you have here in the church. You know, just a few years ago, I would come to Chalmers and uh, kids were very few and far between. So it excites me just to see all these children around. And I think that's your future right there, isn't it? They are the church of today, and it's just so exciting to see them all. So kudos to all of you who are embracing them and, and welcoming them. You know, they can be a little noisy, but that's kids, right? We got some grandkids right now, and we know what that's all about. So we just love it, and I uh, hope you're loving them too, because, you know, they need to know that their future for the next 150 years, if they should live that long, but I don't think they will, but to know that, that the faithfulness of God here at Chalmers... For 150 years, we are here to celebrate that today, aren't we? To, to think about what God has done in you as a church over that 150 years span and all the ministry and the influence you've had in the community. It's been amazing to think about that. Uh, there's not many churches that can say we've been here for 150 years. So I think that's just a, a, a wonderful thing to see. We're going to talk today about Psalm 23. Probably a very, very familiar and common passage of Scripture that most people know. It's been read at many bedsides. It also has been used at many funeral uh, occasions as well. To remind people that the Lord is our shepherd and, and we are his sheep. As we talk about that today, I hope that it'll become clear to you that we are beginning, uh, actually, as, as Pastor already said, a, a really a four-part series on celebrating God's faithfulness. Uh, throughout the years and generations uh, in the local church. And we want to show you how Psalm 23 
is an integral part of understanding, you know, God's faithfulness, how he works with us as his people. And I hope that that comes through to you today quite clearly as we talk about this. Even though this psalm has just six verses, and if you want to look at that in, your, in the Pew Bible, it's page 592, if you want to find Psalm 23. I'll have it on the screen in a second, but throughout the time I'm talking about it, if you want to reference it, that's where it's at, page 592. But even though it only has six verses, someone has said that it is sublimely simple, and yet simply sublime on the other side of that coin. And really it is. It is a wonderful psalm, and I hope that we can really learn a lot of its truths today. So let's read it together. Look at this, and as I read it, let's try to absorb what's being said here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you were with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23's agrarian language is not common today. Because, you know, we live in an urbanized and technological culture today. And so we hear little of that farming technology that used to be technology, quote unquote, years and years ago. But a little bit of it is common perhaps up here because there are still some who do some farming in this particular area. But you have to remember that we don't usually hear a lot about sheep and shepherds anymore, although that was commonplace in the biblical language. In fact, the biblical narrative from Genesis right through into the early church talked much about the context between shepherds and sheep because God was likened to be our shepherd and we his sheep. And let's not forget that that analogy brings clear to us I think, some of the real truths about ourselves. First of all, sheep are not known to be intelligent animals. It's just the way it is. They're not known, also, to be animals that typically always do what's best. They have their own way. They tend to be a little bit on the stubborn side. They can go and do things. And shepherds have to make sure that they look out for their best interests, Again, that analogy is not lost on us as humanity because we too often want to do our own thing. We can to be also a little stubborn. That's why we're called sheep. That's essentially what the scripture is trying to get across to us. If we look at some of the scriptures uh, in the Bible, and it has a lot to do with mentioning of shepherds, let's look at a few of them because it's important for us to understand before we get into Psalm 23, some of the context around why that psalm was written and who wrote it, and how could he write it? Okay, those are critical things to understand. But first of all, our relationship to God and our whole salvation is also framed in the language of shepherds and sheep. For example, Isaiah says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so it's clear that the imagery of sheep is clearly being put upon us 
that we are like sheep, as Isaiah said. And then we have Peter, who also says in the New Testament, he says, you had wandered away like sheep, but now you have returned to the one who is your shepherd and protector. Clearly, again, this is Old and New Testament, but the analogy is clear that there are shepherds and then there are sheep. And we are the sheep and God is our shepherd. You know, Jesus himself used many metaphors and he used many parables to talk about the kingdom of God. If you go through the scriptures, the New Testament, you'll discover that. But it is interesting that he established, though, his reputation and his office through the metaphor of a shepherd. In fact, he is called the great shepherd, he's called the chief shepherd, and he's called the good shepherd. Three times those illustrations are used of Jesus himself. And again, the importance of the context of being a shepherd and we being his sheep is not lost or should not be lost on us. He even presented his own redeeming work, okay, in the context of this by saying, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. If we look even further, issue of Jesus' final charge to Peter about the ministry that he was to have in the local church, again, Jesus uses the vocabulary of shepherding. He says on three occasions to him, after he asks him a question in John 21, Peter, do you really love me? You remember this incident in John 21? And each time that Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you, then Jesus gives him three statements, and those statements are, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. Again, you can see so clearly that Jesus is trying to remind him of the importance, because he says the church really is going to begin with understanding this, that Jesus is in fact saying to Peter, and two of those disciples around him, because they were within earshot, they heard him speak this language to Peter specifically, but he's basically saying to them, I am a shepherd, you also be a shepherd too, because I want you to do what I do, and that is be a shepherd. And so they took upon themselves the role of understanding that they too were to become shepherds. Now, so far then, the importance, I think, of the shepherd-sheep theme in Scripture then cannot be overlooked. I wanted to establish that with you from the outset of how important that is. Now let's look at David in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 was written by King David, who was no stranger to the occupation of shepherding. For example, David saw himself and he saw all of Israel as sheep and God as their shepherd. David understood that relationship clearly from the outset, and you're going to understand why I say that in a moment. For example, David's own call to become a king was framed in the language of shepherding and sheep. And Asaph, when he wrote in Psalm 78, when he wrote these words, he clearly wanted us to understand the calling of David to become king of Israel in this context. He chose David, look at the scripture on the screen, to be his servant and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from tending the sheep so he could lead the flock, the people of Jacob, his own people, the people of Israel. So here David is called out of sheep pens in an obscure, humble beginning 
learning how to tend for sheep to become the shepherd of Israel and Israel being that flock that he would shepherd as its leader. Then also I wanted you to see too that David faced the Goliath the giant from his experiences as a shepherd. And watch the language he uses as he goes to King Saul And he says to King Saul, because none of the men in Israel, of course, were going to take on this giant. Nobody. In fact, people bigger and stronger than David did not sign up. And they watched the Philistine giant day after day taunt the Israeli armies. Finally, David comes on the scene and he's annoyed by this, that nobody seems to want to step into this role of taking on this giant. So I want you to see what the scriptures are saying. As David comes to Saul, he says to him, I, your servant, have been keeping my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a sheep from the flock, I would chase it. I would attack it and save the sheep from its mouth. And when it attacked me, I caught it by its fur and I hit it and I killed it. I, your servant, have killed both a lion and a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like them because he has spoken against the armies of the living God. It's interesting that, again, from his experiences as a shepherd, he sees this responsibility of taking on the Philistine giant as nothing more than an extension of his role as a shepherd in looking after his sheep for his father years ago. Now, pay attention closely to this because... As a shepherd and king of Israel, David's experiences that he went through qualified him to write Psalm 23. I want you to consider the many difficulties this man faced, the many trials that he went through. Because when someone writes something, you say there's something to that. Like, for example, Psalm 23. You say, when we come to this and look at it, you say, Okay, what brought a person to the point of writing Psalm 23? Well, I'll tell you what brought him to that point. These experiences that I'll share with you as a backdrop will help you to understand that this man who was a shepherd of Israel and tended God's flock, the people of Israel, went through many, many experiences in his life which helped frame his ability to write Psalm 23 in the language that he did. But let's consider some of those trials. When King Saul's kingdom was taken away from him and he was tormented by an evil spirit, they suggested that they find somebody who could play some music for him to calm his soul. And they picked David, a harpist, and they asked David to come and play his harp, and he did. And when he played his harp, the evil spirit was quieted in the soul of Saul. But there were times when King Saul, because he was a jealous man of David and of his exploits, he would take his spear and he would hurl it at him and try to kill him. And several times David had to dodge the spear of King Saul. Not only did that happen, but later as Saul's jealousy got worse and worse, King Saul also pursued David and he tried his hardest to get David killed. He took his men with him, he pursued him, David tried to hide in caves and in the hill country, but Saul was relentless in his effort to try to get rid of David. And David would literally have to live in fear of where is Saul and where is his men. And all during this time, David is learning what it means. 
He's understanding what it means to go through life and understand how to trust God as his shepherd. You know, as a result, too, of David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, God told David he wasn't going to let him off. He wasn't going to let him go easy. He told him that the sword would not depart from his family and his family would openly rebel against him. And the child born to him in Bathsheba would die. And true enough, that happened. And it began here with David's oldest son, Amnon, raping his sister, Tamar. David would experience the beginnings of this sword not departing from his family, this tribulation, this turmoil because of his sin. This agony he would go through would be gut-wrenching, to say the least, for him as a father. But he does nothing with at all. Amnon does not deal with him. And later, because of that, Absalom decided that he would, you know, avenge his sister Tamar. And he has Amnon killed for raping his sister. And then Absalom lives estranged from his father David for over two years, never seeing his face. In fact, the scripture says David longed to go to him. Now picture this family dynamic. He longed to go to him, but he would not see his face. You know, there are some families that are living like that today as I speak to you this morning. There are some families that are living estranged from each other. They can't see each other's face. There's, there's a lot of hostility there. There's a lot of bitterness there. And David is going through this. And so he brings him to the city of Jerusalem. And for two years, he's living in the same city. And in two years goes by, he does not see his face. Even though he wants to, but he doesn't want to. You know those kind of things that people go through when they go through those kinds of uh, internal family dynamics and experiences. Well, David's son Absalom also, because of this lack of understanding, I suspect, and because of the lack of estrangement, or not the lack of, but because of the estrangement, and because of the lack of affection that he probably was looking for from his father, decides that he's going to use subterfuge to steal away the hearts of the people of Israel by fawning all over them and undermining his father David, which he does. And eventually what this all boils down to is that he creates a coup. So Absalom starts this coup, declaring himself as king, and then he tries to take the kingdom away from David. David and his men and some of his selected counselors have to flee the city for their lives because Absalom has garnered the support of a lot of individuals in, the, in Jerusalem and Judah and in Israel. And so he leaves the city under the threat of his own son going to try to kill him. And if that doesn't make matters worse enough, as he's leaving the city, heartbroken about what's going on, another man comes along named Shimei. And Shimei, he curses David. He actually curses at him, hurls rocks at him as he's going out of the city to add insult to injury, literally making him feel even worse. It's a sad day for David. It's a sad day for Israel and for Judah and for Jerusalem. But all of this experience he's going through is framing him and his understanding to prepare him to write Psalm 23. Now let's talk about you and me and Psalm 23. How does that affect us? 
David's experiences, see, will now begin to come through in this psalm to help us understand more clearly what it is we really should understand from this psalm. I want you to notice, first of all, that David doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd. David doesn't take a broad pen and a broad sweep in language. David says the Lord is my shepherd. Now, if Psalm 23 is going to become meaningful to any of you this morning, it has to become personalized. You know, we can look at God's faithfulness as a church for the 150 years that we've been here, and we can say in a, in a broad and sweeping way, God has been faithful to us. He has been our shepherd. But do you know the truth and the reality that he's not been just ours, our shepherd, but he has been my shepherd? He has led me throughout my lifetime, and I have known the intimacy of his presence, the closeness and sweetness of his voice in my ear. When I pray, when I seek his face, when I know him intimately like that, I know he's just not that person's shepherd, but he is also my shepherd. And David wants us to understand that. And he says to the people of Israel in Psalm 28, he's praying and he says, you know, I know what it means to have you as my shepherd. Every Sunday that you come here, you know intimately, I suspect, those of you that have known the Lord, you know how wonderful it is to say the Lord is my shepherd. But David, being the king that he was, he also saw the importance, and this is where I want you to see that importance too. I want you to understand that as you pray like David prayed, he said, be their shepherd. Not just mine, but be their shepherd and carry them forever. David was praying for all of Israel. When you pray, are you praying that God's not just your shepherd, but that he is the shepherd of the people of all this vicinity and area? Is that not your heart? Is that not your desire? Your cry within when you pray, Lord, I know, I know you as my shepherd, but I want others to know you too as their shepherd and to know the benefits that are derived from that close relationship of having you as my shepherd. He said, I shall not want. Wow. Is that language foreign to us today or what? We live in such a consumer-crazed culture today that almost anything we want, we get or we pursue. Relentlessly chasing after with all of our heart, we go after things because we, we are in a consumer generation of we want, we want, we want. The Lord is my shepherd. That's enough. Essentially, that's what he's saying. That's all we really need. And it's not that he's saying, okay, you don't need to eat food. You don't need to have clothes. But even Jesus talked about that later to his disciples. And he said to them, look, seek first the kingdom of God and, all, and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. Don't preoccupy yourself with things. Preoccupy yourself with him. I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. I, over the years, have done a lot of fishing. And for those of you that have done that as well, if you ever have an opportunity to fish beside quiet waters, 
Stillwaters, he used to call them. And down where I grew up, there was uh, a section of the river that literally turned into this place that we called Stillwaters. And that was the actual name of the place. And it was funny, if you looked at the water, you really couldn't see the river moving, although you knew it was, but it was this effect of where the waters came in and pooled that it looked as though it was a still water. I don't know how many times I sat there and looked out across those waters as I was fishing, and it was a calming effect. You know, just sitting there and just relaxing, chilling out and fishing, and it just calmed the soul to be there beside those still waters. I can understand that these sheep, when they were led to those still waters, they too were getting the sense of calmness behind all of that, and a sense of serenity, a sense of peace, a sense of inner calmness. You know, we live in a very turbulent world today. There's a lot of inner turmoil that's going on in a lot of people's souls today, and they don't know necessarily that real intimacy with God that allows them in the middle of the turmoil to be able to settle themselves down and relax beside the still waters that our shepherd wants to lead us into. When we're in his presence, when we're there right with him in intimacy with with him, he can really calm us completely. That's why Isaiah would say these words. He would say, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Think about that. If we have him as our focus, then we don't want and we will experience the still waters. He also talks about restoring our souls. I don't know if you understand how much we need that today. But there's a lot of stuff that comes in that creates a lot of pollutants spiritually, right, inside of our lives. And a lot of times, you know, it's because of sometimes our own doing, sometimes it's our own rebelliousness, our own stubbornness, our own waywardness, because all we like sheep, right, have gone astray. It's obvious then that we over the years, and perhaps even not just years, but months and weeks, we have allowed things to come into our lives that have not been healthy for us. Wrong thoughts, bitterness, sin that we've not confessed, things that we may not have dealt with in our lives. And because we don't deal with that, over time, what happens is that begins to just build up inside of us. And we need our our souls literally restored. And David said, you know, he restores Israel's soul. No, he didn't. He said, he restores my soul. Now, think of all the things now. I want you to think about the things that David went through. A family member rapes one of your family members. One of your family members murders one of your family members. I want you to build this experience up in your head to understand, okay, all the things this man witnessed and experienced and how grievous it was to him to have to go through all of this that he saw. And then he says, the Lord restores my soul. In the backside of the desert, in those caves, when he's running for fear from King Saul, he restores my soul. Many of the Psalms are written from those contexts of caves and the hillsides when Saul was pursuing him. This man knew what it was like 
to trust the Lord. And you know something? He's the only individual, too, in the Bible who gets the designation, no one else does, as being a man after God's own heart. No one else in the Bible gets that description. David learned hard way, yes. And I wish, you know, I I do. I wish all of you and I, me, me included, we'd learn all these things the easy way. But because we're like sheep, we don't always learn the easy way. Wouldn't it be nice if we did? But we do learn life's experiences sometimes the, what we call the hard way. That's because I think we're sheep. And David was no different. But he also knew what it was like for the Lord to restore his soul. I want to mention to you something here because there's, a, there's an old English term called cast sheep. And I want to illustrate to you what all that's about and what that literally means because a cast sheep is a, is a sheep that has turned over on its back. Okay, I, I, you know, some of you may know this. But when they're in that position, okay, turned over on their back, it's not a pretty picture. And it is not a nice thing. When they're in that position of being cast down, they flail their legs in the air, they bleat, they cry. And literally, after a few hours of being in that position, they're on their backs, gas begins to collect in their stomachs, their stomachs harden, the air passage is cut off, and the sheep will eventually suffocate if not arrighted and put onto their feet. This is referred to that cast-down position. You'll recall on many occasions, David, when he was writing his Psalms, would say things like, Why art thou so cast down, O my soul? He would use that imagery often. And, of course, he would understand, and others would too, as they read his psalm, what it would look like to be cast down, to be on your back, helpless, and flailing in the air with your legs, and and knowing that your air is being going to be cut off. And this is the imagery that when a shepherd comes into a situation like this, what does he do? What he does is he, he reaches down, and he begins to reassure in calm language the sheep, massaging its legs to restore circulation. He gently turns the sheep over. He lifts it up and he holds it so that it can regain its equilibrium. I don't know if you can just for a moment imagine what we're seeing here in this imagery because all we like sheep. Now think about ourselves for a moment. How many times have you been on your back literally spiritually now, maybe physically too, but spiritually because of things that you've allowed to come into your life and this is why you need to have your soul restored. I haven't lived 150 years yet, but one thing I can say to you is that as old as I am right now, I know what it means to literally, like David, understand the benefits and the beauty of having one's soul restored. I've seen that personally firsthand of having my soul restored. There have been times, and whether it's because of your own stubbornness, your own things that you do in life, that you get into a position, you know, like that cast sheep. You go off on your own. As you notice, there's no other sheep around. You notice that imagery and picture? And there are many others you could watch, too. If you looked at the Internet, you'd see some. And sadly, we lay there on our backs spiritually. And sometimes we're there simply because, of course, we've got a pre-absorbed, I guess, maybe somewhat in all of our discouragement. Maybe despair overcomes us. Maybe it's guilt. 
Maybe it's bitterness. There's a, there's a myriad of things it can be that puts you on your back spiritually, but while you're there, do you know that Jesus, our great shepherd, specializes in restoring our souls? Jesus restored the diseased, the disabled, the discouraged, the demonized. He calmed the fearful. Jesus, as our great shepherd, can enter into any situation in life where you feel like you're cast down and where you're flailing and where you feel like you too are suffocating under life's pressures and life's troubles and trials and he too can come and restore your soul. So let's continue to look at this. He guides me, the psalm says, in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Perhaps we need to understand, too, that we need to be guided. I don't know, like, I mean, we can go our own way and do our own thing because there's a lot of people in the world that tend to think, well, I'm a self-made man, self-made woman. I bow down in the mirror and all I see is myself and there's nobody else to see because I'm it. We tend to think that if we have troubles, we have trials, well, we just pull up our socks and we just uh, pull up our pants and we get on to life and we just keep going on because we have learned that no one's out there going to help us and we got to do it all ourselves. So we really are tough. We are macho. We can do what we want. And we just go ahead and do our thing, our way. How's that working for you? Really? Because you see, at some point in life, you too, like everybody else, are going to come up against another mirror. And that mirror is going to reveal the true person that's looking into the mirror. It's going to say to you clearly, you know what? You haven't done such a good job looking after your life like you think you're the captain and master of your own soul and destiny. By the way, it's not working out like quite like you thought it would. And sometimes we see the mess we've made over the years. It's a, it's a sorry-looking piece of patchwork as we look at our lives and we see what we've done. And we know, if we're honest, and that's the key, right? But if we're honest, we know that we need to admit that we need his help. You know, I told you earlier that sheep are stubborn. I told you that, and I mentioned to you that, that that's the truth. It really is. Scripture verifies that many, many times about us. So why do we need guidance? Because there are those teenage years that we go through. There's stress when we go through those teen years. There are parenting struggles we face. There are empty nests syndromes that people face. And then there's growing old. And what's that like? How do I deal with all of that? There are those times that God will guide us if we ask him through job loss, through anger, through resentment, through depression, and all the important decisions that we have to make in life. As our shepherd, he cares deeply for us. And he tries to get us off of our destructive paths. He leads us. The real question is, will we follow? Sometimes we have this imagery that God's going to just take us, you know, grab us by the shirt and lead us. That's not what's happening here. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The question is, will we follow? Shepherds know what it's like to have sheep that will follow, but they also know what it's like to have sheep that, that are maverick sheep, sheep that don't want to follow, don't want to go down that path and lead along with him and follow him. You know that sheep cannot clean themselves? 
I don't know if you knew that, but unlike other animals out there, they cannot clean themselves. Cats can clean themselves, dogs can clean themselves, but sheep can't clean themselves. Now, again, that imagery is so beautiful, is it not? Do you think you can clean yourself? Spiritually. Can you clean yourself from all of that sinful behavior that you've gone through all your life? Can you purge all that out? Can you purge all that bitterness and anger and resentment out? Can you clean yourself? There's a lot of people think that, you know, a few self-help books, a few techniques and therapies that can do it. I've got to tell you something. There's nothing that can clean you spiritually like the Lord, His grace, His mercy, and His restoring power and ability. So when a sheep, it says in the scripture in Psalm 23, when a sheep was considered to have passed under the rod, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. When a, when a sheep was considered to have passed under the rod, the rod would be used to part the wool of the sheep. And they would inspect that wool of the sheep because often there are bugs or termites or disease that can get in between the wool that cannot be seen visibly by one's eye just looking at the sheep. Again, the Lord, he looks at us not just on the outside, he looks at us on the inside, where a lot of these things that bother us are. And the shepherd does the same. He will deal with all of that, and he will help that sheep to become better and healthier. What a picture and imagery of our great shepherd who also takes care of us. The rod, though, was also used as a weapon. You know, an instrument of protection for the sheep because literally many times these sheep were in danger and the shepherd would use the rod as a means to beat off. You heard what David said, I took my shepherd's staff, my rod, and I beat off a lion, I beat off a bear. You know, there were times they would have to literally use this thing because that was the only thing that they had between them and the death of those sheep. When he says that he's leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, I have, as a pastor over the years, had opportunity. And literally, it is, it is a, a humbling experience to be beside people who are dying. But especially beside those who are truly saints of God. People that are so close to the Master. And to watch them enter into that period of their lives where they know that, that death is imminent. It's a humbling experience to sit there and to be by their bedside and to listen to their faith that now is being sorely tested. And the question is not, can we start well? The question in life will always be for all of us, can we, can we finish well? And David is saying that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. What does that literally mean? You know, for shepherds who in Israel would take their sheep, many times they'd have to go through these areas called ravines and wadis. Now there were steep cliffs on both sides of often getting from one pasture to the next pasture. And they would take them through these ravines. And in these ravines, there were narrow little areas, very narrow. But because the ravines walls were so high, the sunlight could not get in. And so they were dark, very dark. The imagery here is that the shepherd is leading them through these paths of uncertainty, these paths of danger. And, by the way, animals would lurk in there, literally. 
They would be waiting and hoping that maybe perhaps their next meal would come from an opportunity like this where the sheep were in a confined and narrowed and constricted place. Seizing and looking for the opportunity to strike. And again, I just see this imagery Life's closing in on us. We're, we're coming to the last part of our life and we're beginning to feel like we don't have much more time. Does the enemy at that point begin to call into question in our lives all of God's faithfulness? Absolutely. Is there not the time in your life when, like Job's wife, you counseled Job, her husband, and say, look, it's enough, just give up and curse God and die. The enemy tries at, at a point like this to say, You're not looked after. No one cares about you at this point. You're not even on his radar. But the truth of the matter is, like David is saying, I was in those caves. I was in those dark holes. I was in that hill country. I had somebody chasing me, my enemy, King Saul. Why was he doing this other than he was just jealous? I don't know, but he was pursuing him relentlessly. And David could say, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you are my shepherd. You're with me even in those darkest times of life. That is something that you can't just manufacture. It is something that comes and is born out of you because of your relationship with God and your experiences with Him along the way. They have mastered you into the place of where you now realize that I can trust Him. Five-year-old Johnny was, he was in the kitchen with, with his mother as she was making supper and she asked him, to go into the pantry and to get a can of tomato soup for her. But he didn't want to go in alone. It's dark in that pantry, and I'm scared, he said to his mother. And so she asked him again, and and he persisted. No, I don't want to go in there. It's too dark. Finally, she said, it's okay, she said. Jesus will be in there with you. So Johnny uh, walked hesitantly to the door and slowly opened it. He peeked inside, he saw it was dark, and he started then to leave. When all of it once an idea came to him, and he said, Jesus, if you were in there, would you hand me a can of tomato soup? <laughs> you know, there are times in our lives, really, aren't there, when we, too, don't want to go into those places in life, those, those places that give us fear, whether it's a new, a new job we're interviewing for or things that bring us that intrepidation, you know, that sense of, we don't know. Uh, It's unknown and it's uncertain, right? One thing we can be sure about, though, is that we can go into those pantries in life. We really can. And he will be there, even in the valley of the shadow of death. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. When this psalm was written, it spoke about God's promise to Israel, about all of its physical blessings. But it's also talking to us about our spiritual blessings. You prepare a table before me. If we think about what Jesus said to his followers, you know, in the world, you'll have persecution and tribulation. You'll have all those things because if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And in the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You think that, you know, in the midst of that, what, what, is, what he's framing for us is this picture of life. The road of being a disciple is not easy. Not pleasant either at times. It will be trying. It'll be difficult. It'll stretch you. But in those times, one of the things you need to know is that there's a table of God's spiritual blessings presented for you that you can have and are yours 
like our high calling in Christ. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, you can't help but see all the blessings given to you, his people. You anoint my head with oil, and the oil in the New Testament and old is often a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. You anoint my head with oil. Jesus said it was expedient that I go away to his disciples one day because he said, if I do not go away, the comforter will not come. We have been anointed as Christians with the presence of God's Holy Spirit who has promised to be our comforter and to be with us through all that we go through. Lastly, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Israel was to see that God's blessings were not just something that were temporal, but they were also eternal in focus. I want to know, and I don't know about you, but I want to know that God is looking out for me, not just for the time that I live here on this earth, but that there is also a a sense in which God is leading me beyond this temporal realm into a realm called eternity. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And clearly, one knew, of course, that that figuratively speaking was the only way that could be understood. Because one cannot live forever in Chalmers Community Church's house of the Lord forever. And someday, we'll transcend this place. We'll leave this place. We'll go to a eternal home called God's house, God's place where he will live with us and we will dwell with him. That has been the promise of scripture ever since time began. And here it is again being presented to us that the Lord's faithfulness was not a faithfulness that you could depend on only for now or only for the temporal realm. It was a faithfulness that would carry you through this world and into eternity to be with him forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell there in the house of the Lord forever. So let's close by illustrating something here about all of this as I close. A famous actor was an after-dinner speaker at a big function when he stood up to speak, and he invited his audience to choose a poem for him to recite. And there was a long silence until a retired pastor raised his hand and asked him to recite Psalm 23. While the actor did so, even though he was slightly taken aback, but he agreed and did so providing, he said, if the pastor would also recite it after him, which the pastor also reluctantly agreed to do. So the actor recited Psalm 23 with great pronunciation, great effect. His diction was perfect. Every place that should have been emphasized was emphasized, all for effect. At the end of it all, he received a standing ovation. And when the pastor was given the opportunity as well to recite the psalm, he too recited the psalm, although he recited it in a feeble, bit of a broken voice, aged, I suspect, from all the preaching he's done over the years. But as he went through it and finished reciting Psalm 23, there wasn't a dry eye in the entire place. At that point, the actor comes over to the pastor and he stands beside him and he says to all of the invited guests that were there for the occasion, he says to them, do you know the difference today between his version of Psalm 23 and my version? 
And then he stopped and waited for effect and said to the people, he said, I know Psalm 23, but he knows the shepherd. You see, this can't just be a scripture today, a familiarity to all of us that are here. This must be a scripture that says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Then we can say the Lord is Chalmers Community Church's shepherd. They shall not want. He will guide you and lead you as a church in the days that are ahead. And the next 150 years, should God tarry and not send back his son, Jesus, may they be even better than these first 150. Because we cannot lose. He is our shepherd. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much today for your goodness and faithfulness as our shepherd throughout the years to each of us individually and corporately to this church here at Chalmers Community Church. And I pray that God today, they'll be reminded of your faithfulness, not only to us as a church, but to each of us individually. And today, Father, too, you know, if if there are people here that have never really experienced the intimacy of as having you as their shepherd, Lord, would you open up their heart, open up their, their spiritual heart and mind and eyes to see you for who you are, help them to turn their lives over into you, to be a sheep today that will come along and follow the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and the good shepherd of our souls who laid down his life for us and gave it up freely for all of us, his sheep. Bless this day and all that rest that happens throughout this day here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.